How's everyone doing? Everyone's doing good? All right, let's go ahead and take our seat this morning. Man, it's so good to be back with you guys this morning. Thank you for uh, allowing my family and I to go on vacation. And some of you are probably thinking, did we let them go on vacation? Well, you did. And and uh, we're very thankful for that. It was such a blessing to be able to get away. I heard you guys had just a little bit of cold weather while we were gone. Um, but uh, it, was, it was really a blessing. I don't know how many of you know, but, but Sandra's dad has been really sick for a while, fighting cancer and kidney failure and a number of things going on in his life. And, and every January, her family has a big get-together, a big family reunion on New Year's Eve. And and so we don't know how many New Year's Eves we're going to have with him. And so thank you for allowing us to be there to celebrate that with him and, and our children to see him and spend time with him. It's really difficult living, you know, us in Texas, them in California. And so we really treasure those opportunities that we can do that. And so thank you again. Also want to say thank you to Tony Corso and Greg. I heard they did a fantastic job while I was at Way. In fact, I was wondering if I was going to have a job to come back to. Um, <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm thankful for them and the ways that God has used them and, and um, just marvel at the way God has fashioned his church together, that it's not really built around one particular personality, but around several people who love God and have been equipped and gifted to, to, uh, to speak and to share from God's word. And so really, really thankful about that. Third thing before we get into the word, um, Greg mentioned the stake and study to stop trafficking. Ladies, usually I, I try to keep you and encourage you not to nag your husbands. Well, this you have my permission to nag your husband until he um, is blue in the face to get him to this event. It's going to be really, really great. Steve Singleton, who leads Still Creek Ranch there in Bryan, Texas, he, um, he's actually a missionary out of Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale. And so look forward to having him here to share with the men on a very, very important issue. As Greg said, that no man is above and is a fight and a battle for every single one of us. And so, man, it's important that we can lock arms and stand together in these things. All right, if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. It's where we're going to be spending our morning together. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and as soon as you're there, and if you need a Bible, raise your hand real high. Ronnie can get one into your hand. As soon as you're there, go ahead and stand with me if you're physically able this morning as we read from God's holy and inspired word. We're going to read the first five verses together. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, picking up in verse 1. Paul writes, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, 
but in the power of God. Let's pray together. Father, this morning I am so thankful, God, for the work that you are doing, Lord, in this church and in your church across this country. God, I thank you, Father, for Jesus who has come into the world to seek and to save that which has been lost. God, we thank you that our lives are a testimony to your saving power and to your amazing grace. God, I pray this morning that you would give us insight into this passage. God, that we might understand with greater clarity the very thing that Paul lived and died to herald and to proclaim. God, that we could take those truths and we could internalize them and apply them to our own lives that are our hearts. God would live and beat for this same purpose and same cause. God, we surrender to you. We ask, God, that from this pulpit and every pulpit in this city, God, that Jesus would be made much of, Lord, in these worship services. And so, Lord, we thank you and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Man, go ahead and have your seat again. Well, this morning is a, is a very, very special Sunday for me. This is one of two times throughout the course of the year that I share the vision of the church. It's a city, or it's a, not a city, but a series that we call This is Calvary Paris. It's an opportunity, and it's a time where I take to really define who we are as a church, why we are doing the things that we're doing and where we're going, the direction we believe wholeheartedly that God is guiding us and directing us. We do this twice a year. We do this in January, and then we do this again in either July or August time frame. It's so important for me to have these opportunities to reiterate to you the vision of the church. I want you to know the, the direction that this ship is sailing, in a sense. I don't want you on board a vessel that you have no clue where it's going, what's happening, but that you might fully know and, and be able to plug in and to take ownership and to be a part of what we believe God wants to do here in our church. And so thank you for being here and making the, uh, the time to be here in person. We have a lot of people who follow this service online. I want to encourage you online listeners, you need to be here next Sunday for part two of this because it's being part of the church isn't just hearing the message, it's, it's loving one another and we'll get into that in next week's message. But what I want to do, well, quick question, how many of you were here for this series last January? See a couple staff people raise their hands. <laughs> That's good that you're here. See, not, not a, a large number of you weren't even here for this last year. And so it's so good that you're here this year to hear about the great things that God is doing and that we believe God wants to do. And so in our time together, I want to start with reiterating to you what the mission of our church is and show you where that mission, where those principles and where those convictions really come from. I believe wholeheartedly that our mission is Jesus's mission. Regardless of who a pastor is or where the church is located, no pastor has the, priv the privilege or the prerogative of defining the mission for the church. We are all bought. We are the blood-bought bride of Jesus Christ. 
We are his body in this world. We've been given a mission from Jesus of what he wants you and I to do, what our lives are intended to accomplish. And he gives that to you and I, not only the early church, but he gives it to you and I in the Great Commission. And he writes, and the writer of Matthew records for us, Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20, and Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. Amen. In the Great Commission, Jesus has clearly outlined what your life is supposed to be about. He's given us very, very specific directions in what the church is supposed to be about. It's intended to be about the redemptive plan of God, reaching people, saving lost souls. And so our mission, if you guys can put that slide up, is to reach, rescue, and restore sinners to Jesus by his grace and for his glory. We believe that's what God is doing in the world. That's what we want. We want to be a city on a hill. We want to be a spiritual hospital, not just provide a comfortable seat for people to come sit in as consumers, but we want to be a spiritual hospital where the broken and the weary and the lost can come and find hope in Jesus Christ. We want to see people who don't know God come and meet Jesus Christ, their Savior. You and I, I'm not sure if you know this about yourself, but you are a redeemed, rescued slave. Paul tells us that all of us, born into sin, born into slavery, born into the attitude that we know better than God, and every time we sin, we're saying, God, this is your way, but my way is better. And by doing that, we're, we're seeking to be our own God. Well, Jesus has come to deliver us from that. And those who have been redeemed, we've been redeemed to redeem. We've been saved to be a part of what Paul refers to in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're called to be ministers of reconciliation in this world. Here we are just after Christmas in its perfect timing. In Chris, during the Christmas Advent series, it was my goal to show you what this book is really about. The redemptive plan of God, what God has been doing since day one, since the creation, the fall and then restoration is what we see in Revelation 21 and 22. That's what God is doing. One life, one soul at a time. He's restoring all things as they were intended to be. And he's making everything that was sad as a result of the fall become untrue. And you and I have been rescued, have been redeemed to redeem. To be an agent of transformation in the context in which you live, you work, where you spend your time with friends. I love what Martin Luther writes. He says that we are nothing more as believers. We are nothing more than beggars showing other beggars where to find bread. That's what you are. 
We've, we've come to find that in Christ is, is the bread of life. We've come to find something that, that satisfies, that scratches the deep itch deep within all of our hearts. And we go and we tell others, this is what I found to be true. This is where I found life. I'm reminded of the woman by the well in John chapter 4. After she encounters Jesus and she drinks from that well, what does she do? She runs to where she was from and she begins to tell everybody, there's this man who knew everything about me. She was a beggar who found bread, who shared with other beggars where she found life. It's our hope that as we reach, rescue, and restore sinners are a part of God's work that by his grace and for his glory, that this will be a place where slaves are freed, where people are restored, where hearts are redeemed. We want to see drug addicts. We want to see prostitutes. We want to see self-righteous people come through our doors and find life in Jesus Christ. And so what does that mean? That means there will be times that people come in our doors who are different than you in some way, in some form, in some fashion, who are deeply entrenched in some form of addiction and sin, who won't know how to behave in church. What, I mean, what does that mean to behave in church? It's really a cultural thing that when you come to church, this is how you're supposed to behave. Well, you know, when people haven't ever been in church, they don't know how to behave. And that means there may be people who walk in here who looks like they've been drug in off the streets, just like you and I did when we first came in. It means that God expects us not to shun them, but to love them. Why? Because you and I are that person. I love the story of the great Samaritan And one thing that story is really intended to communicate to you and I is that Jesus is the good Samaritan and you and I are the individual lying in the gutter who's been beaten and who's bruised and who's bleeding and is impotent and incompetent and cannot help themselves. But Jesus, as the good Samaritan, he brings us, shows us undeserved love and kindness and favor, and he brings us into a place where we can find restoration. And so it's my hope that for every single one of us who are living off of the substitutes of this world for riches, for for position, for possessions, that we might be weaned off of those idols and find great joy and satisfaction in the love of God. So that our lives, that image of God, like the video said, that we were made in the image of God, and as a result of the fall, that image is marred. It's broken, but Jesus is restoring it. And so it's our hope, is our mission statement, to reach, rescue, and restore sinners to Jesus by his grace alone and for his glory. Not to make much of Calvary Paris. We don't want to make a name for ourselves. We don't want, I don't want to make a name for me. I don't want you to make a name for you. We want to make the name of Jesus known. We, we want to make much of one name alone. And it's the fingerprints of Jesus that we want on the work that God is doing here. So what God does, everything that he does, is for his glory. Romans, Romans 11, Paul writes in verse 36, for of him 
and through him and to him are all things. So that's our mission statement as a church. And we take it from the Great Commission to reach, rescue, and restore sinners to Jesus by God's grace and for God's glory alone. Therefore, that's our our mission. This is our vision. This is what we do that's unique. Every church should have the same mission statement in a sense. Maybe not articulated in those words, but the Great Commission should be what really every mission statement of every church is oriented around, where vision is something that's unique to this church, to this local gathering of people, and this is our vision. We carry out our mission through upreach, inreach, and outreach, anchored in and fueled by the gospel, the good news, the message about what Jesus Christ has done. That's how our church is organized around those three points, upreach, inreach, and outreach. Every ministry, every sub-ministry falls under one of those points. Upreach is our worship to God. Inreach is how we love and serve and, and disciple one another. And outreach is how we love and serve the world outside of these four walls. We, we believe that because of Jesus and what he's done in God reaching down, that's, that's what God has done at Christmas. Christmas is a testimony that we couldn't do it on our own. And God had to reach down into our world to reach us and to save us in our threefold response as a result of that is upreach to him and reach to one another and outreach to our city. And it's through upreach, inreach, and outreach that we accomplish our mission of reaching and restoring sinners to Jesus by his grace and for his glory. And so this morning, I want us to know what it means to be anchored in and fueled by the gospel. I want us to understand what the gospel is, because if it's going to be the guide for everything that we do, if it's going to be the fuel for our worship and for our discipleship and our outreach, we have to understand what this is. And in our passage here in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul emphatically voices his commitment to doing nothing else than preaching the gospel. He says, that's, that's what I'm committed to. That's what I want to herald. Every, every time I open this book, Paul says, this is what I want you to know. And so if that's what Paul was constrained to preach, then as a pastor and as a preacher, then I have no other option to be constrained to preach the same message the gospel of Jesus Christ. In similar passages, Paul says very similar things. In Galatians 6.14, Paul writes, But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul again emphatically saying, If I'm going to boast in anything, if I'm going to make much of anything in my ministry, in his, in his description of what his job is, he says, I want to make much of Jesus in what he's done. And then again in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. 
Again, Paul, he's writing to battle this mindset where people were trying to make much of the minister. Paul says, ministers, we're nothing but a bunch of cracked pots. Literally, that's what that means. But we have this treasure in more earthen vessels, in these earthen cracked vessels. That's what I am. That's what Greg is. That's what Tony is. That's what everybody who stands with We're nothing but a cracked pot. We don't make much of the messenger. We make much of what? What's this treasure that Paul is referring to? It's the message. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? So that, that people will make much of Jesus. That the excellence of the power may be of God. That people will, wouldn't leave here saying, man, what a great preacher. But they would leave here saying, what a great God. That's Paul's intent. And so if the gospel drives everything that we do as a church, if the gospel is the very foundation that our vision is built upon, it's imperative that we all understand what the gospel is. Therefore, I want us to unpack these verses together and really look at what Paul is saying. So read with me again, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul writing, And I, brethren... When I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined, underline that word, circle it, highlight it, check mark it, whatever you do, do that. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear. And in much trembling, in my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So Paul here in chapter 2, for you Bible students, chapter 2 comes after what? Chapter 1, got a few students here, astute Bible readers. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul has been doing exactly what he did in 2 Corinthians 4. He's trying to put the spotlight not on, not on the, the messenger, but on the message. If you recall, the people were saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter, and Peter says, no, look, just, just by having that attitude, by saying, I'm of this guy, or I'm of that guy, I only like Damien, I, or I only like Greg. And, and I, Paul is saying, you're showing really how immature you really are. Because the messenger isn't the point. The message is what really matters, Paul is saying. And so here in then 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he begins to tell us what the message of his ministry was. If the messenger is irrelevant, and the message is the point, Paul then unpacks what his message was really about. And this is what you and I really need to understand. And I pray that God would shine his light on our hearts, that we could really grasp these things. Paul says there's two things to note about Paul's preaching here in this, and it forms our outline. I only had two points, but two is more than one. Not quite three, but we're getting there. Uh, the first thing we see is the priority of his message. And the second thing is the particulars of his message. Just take that first point. He says in verse 1, And I, brethren, when I came to you, I did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, 
declaring to you the testimony of God. It wasn't Paul's priority to be eloquent nor entertaining. It wasn't Paul's priority to wow people with his charisma or his ability to to make people feel entertained. In fact, most scholars in one Bible writer says, you know, Paul, Paul wasn't all that impressive in person. In fact, Paul seemed to be pretty uncharismatic in his delivery. He wasn't polished in his presentation. He, he wasn't persuasive in his speech. He didn't seek to tinker with people's emotions to get them to make a specific decision or choice. Paul says, I, I didn't come to impress you with, with me. He says, I came to impress you with the message In fact, when we read Paul's letters, Paul's letters are profound and incredibly weighty. But in person, Paul and and people's estimation of him seem to be lacking in charisma. And Paul's okay with that. Because he says in verse 2, For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I didn't come to entertain. I didn't come to show you how gifted or charismatic or polished or any of that, Paul says. I came to preach Jesus and him crucified to you. That that was Paul's priority. The word determined there in verse 2 infers that it's what he was fully, wholeheartedly committed to doing. He had resolved in his heart to do one thing in his ministry. His job description had one point, preach the gospel, preach Christ and him crucified. When in in Pauline thought, the idea of Jesus Christ and him crucified, that's a phrase that Paul is utilizing to say the gospel. Don't think that Paul just walked around saying Jesus Christ and him crucified, Jesus Christ. No, he's saying, I preached the gospel. He was determined. He was resolved to do that. Let me ask you a question. What makes a champion of a cause, whatever the cause be? Determination, resolve, fortitude. For some of you who grew up playing sports, what separates, apart from natural gift, what separates those who who play high school level sports to college level? Determination. Determination. Being determined when everybody else is sitting on the couch. Because I may not be as naturally gifted as this person, I'm determined to play at that level. And so instead, while they're sitting on the couch, I'm going to be shooting free throws. I'm going to be running. I'm going to be kicking a ball. It's determination is what, is what beyond, goes beyond natural gift. And Paul says, this is what I was determined to do. How many of you remember the 1992 Summer Olympics in Barcelona? You guys remember that? No one does. You guys need to watch more TV. The 1992 Summer Olympics in Barcelona once had one profound effect on me, and it was the British runner by the name of Derek Redman. 
Derek Redman was the favorite to win the gold in the 400 meter. After training all of his life for this moment, for this one event, in the semifinals, about 175 meters out from the finish line, Redman tears his right hamstring and he crumbles down to the ground. He, he sits there for just a moment and while medical personnel are running out onto the track, Redman, because of determination, he gets back up and he begins to hobble back down the track. About halfway to the finish line, you guys probably remember the video. If you don't, you can YouTube it, Derek Redman. But about halfway there, his father comes running out onto the track to help him get to the finish line. But what got him there? Determination. He was wholeheartedly committed to this thing. He was determined. And Paul says, that's the kind of attitude. That level of determination is what I, is what burned within me to get this message out. To preach this message about Jesus Christ. That's the priority of his message. He shares with us what what made him tick, what he felt like Jeremiah to be like fire in his bones. It was this message about Jesus Christ. Now, why? It's it's a simple message. Why did this burn in his heart? Well, he tells us in verse 4, he says, In my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of of the spirit and of power. Why? Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is is the message that unleashes the power of God to transform a heart. Do you realize how broken our hearts are? Do you realize how sinful We really, truly are. It takes something from outside of us to free us, to transform us. And that's why Paul says in Romans 1.16, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God into salvation for everyone who believes. Paul Paul says in verse 4, he says, In my speech and preaching were not with persuasive words, In in verse 3, he says, I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. Why why is Paul kind of highlighting here for us that when he came, he came in weakness. He came with fear. He came trembling. And he wasn't coming with persuasive words. Why? Because, listen, there's there's a difference Paul is, is really contrasting here for us. There's a difference between people responding to a message based upon that person's ability to use words and someone responding to a message because the power of God is at work. One is is the arm of the flesh. Listen, I'm good enough with words that I can manipulate people into making a decision or or to act a certain way. But that doesn't do anything in the long run. That, that might work. I see it with my children. That works for a couple of hours. But Paul says, the reason I didn't come, the, I'm not making a big deal of me, is because I want the power of God to be seen. 
there, there's a huge difference between the gifting and charisma of man and the power of God at work in someone's heart. And Paul was committed to it not being someone who's, who made a decision based upon manipulation. It's easy, especially in this setting, it's easy to manipulate people's hearts, to pull on those heartstrings. But that's not always evidence of a true work of God's Spirit in someone's heart. And so Paul is saying that I came to you weak, I came in fear, I came in much trembling, I didn't come with with natural gifting, natural charisma, natural talent, but I came to give you one specific message because in that message is the power of God to change and transform a life. That's Paul's job description. It's not to be great, it's to be faithful with the message. It's not to be entertaining, it's to exhort people unto Jesus Christ. That's, jobs, that's his job description. The job of the pastor is not to give good advice for living from the pulpit. The pulpit is reserved exclusively for the preaching of the gospel. Now, I give good advice every day, all week, to people. Whether they come into my office, they sit on my couch, and they want to know um, what decision is right for their family. What job should they take? Should they move here? Should they move there? Should they go to college here? Should they go to college there? And from my own experience, I, I can give people good advice. Well, this is where my family and I were. This is what we did, and this is what it looked like. But, but you need to pray and see God. And so I give good advice. Listen, that's, that's not what this pulpit is intended to be. It's not, I'm not to be a life coach in how to live your best life now. The pulpit is intended to be one thing, a place where the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed. If there's one thing that Oprah and Dr. Phil help us to see in the world today is that we live in a society that is advice-driven. People need, they want, they long for advice on, on parenting, on marriage, on how to deal with stress, on how to handle their finances. I mean, there's a whole array of things that Dr. Phil's always talking about. People want advice for their lives. Listen, the reason the pulpit is to be a place where the gospel is proclaimed because issues in marriage and parenting and stress and handling money has a deeper root that the gospel remedies. People ask me often, when are you going to start talking about something practical like how to handle finances or how to deal with stress? And I don't even know what that means. When are you going to be more practical? Because in my estimation and in Paul's estimation and in Jesus' own estimation in Luke 4, he says, I came to preach the gospel. There's nothing more practical than the gospel working in our hearts. Listen, in my life, there's been nothing more life-changing and transforming than this message. The daily rehearsal of who I was, who I am, and the way that God loves me. There's nothing that has changed my marriage more in my ability to, to love my children and to lead a church than the message about Jesus Christ. Because all of these other issues are all rooted in a problem with Jesus. A dysfunctional relationship with God gives birth and is the symptoms of that are stress, marriage problems, 
mishandling of our finances. And so there's nothing more practical than, than meeting the need at the root. And that's what the gospel does. The pulpit is reserved for one specific thing, to diagnose disease, sin, and to deliver the remedy for our disease, Jesus Christ. It's to proclaim the message of how we have been rescued from peril, how we've been saved from being our own God. And if that's the priority of Jesus, and that's the priority of Paul, then as a pastor and a leader, that will be our priority in church. That's the priority of our message from in different ways, from different passages to show you that you have cancer and that Jesus is the remedy. Over and over and over. I, I need it. I need it every single day because here's the thing. You're far worse off than you think you are. You really are. You're far more sinful than you recognize but in Christ, you're far more loved than you would ever imagine. And that changes hearts. That transforms lives. That, that turns our obedience into true obedience. Not coerced obedience, not coached obedience, not obedience out of guilt, but true obedience is obedience motivated by love and goodness. Because unconditional love is the most difficult thing to sin against. It really is. So that was the priority of Paul's message. It's the priority of our message. Now the particulars of his message, if the gospel is what he preached, if the gospel is what we preach, what is the gospel? Because I think there's a lot of confusion surrounding this, this word today. And really in understanding what the gospel is, I want us first to see what it's not. The gospel is not everything in the Bible. Although the Bible should be read through the lens of the gospel and it communicates the gospel, all of the Bible that you hear isn't always gospel. In fact, there is a way, there is a way that you can teach this book, book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and miss the gospel in it where it turns into one big, long burden and to-do list to do. That's not the gospel. It's, it's important that we understand this. The, the gospel, as one pastor said, is not just a junk drawer for all of your thoughts about God. The, the label gospel music doesn't do us any good because anything Christian music, we always call gospel music. If you go into iTunes and you download an album and it's Christian, it's going to say gospel, which that's, it's, it's not true because the reality is the gospel is a very, very specific message. When I first became a believer, one of the guys who had invited me to church him and I were talking about church and we were talking about spirituality and religion and just things like that. And one of our, our coworkers, he said, that's enough of all that gospel talk. The gospel isn't just talk about spiritual things. The gospel is the good news that in the person of Jesus Christ, God reached down to a sinful world. The gospel is not primarily a way of life. Sometimes we think, well, gospel living 
is just trying harder to live by the commands. Sometimes we think, I'm going to go to church because I'm turning a new leaf. I'm starting a new chapter, and and I, I want to live my life in a gospel way. Listen, the gospel isn't a way of life. It's not something we do, but it's something that has been done for us, and we simply respond to it. In the Greek, the word euangelizo, proclaim good news, the evangelist, occurs 23 times in the Old Testament. Not just the New Testament word, in the Old Testament. Psalm 40 verse 9 is one occurrence. It says, I have proclaimed the good news of righteousness in the great assembly. Indeed, I do not restrain my lips. I have proclaimed the good news. The gospel is a proclamation. It's a news headline that says it is finished. That what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross in his life and his death means it is finished. And we live our lives now in light of all of those truths. The word is typically used to declare the news of something that has happened to people who were dying, to people who were in peril, Several years ago, and I had just joined the Navy, I was out in the sea with a friend. And that friend started, wasn't, wasn't a great swimmer, and he got caught in, in a riptide. And they began to get pulled out into the sea, and they were literally were drowning. And I'm kind of standing out there with them, and I'm watching, thinking like they're messing around. And, oh, stop messing around. They're like, I'm drowning. And I'm like, no, you're not. Come on, let's go. It's time to go in. And they're literally dying out there. And so I swim out there, never been a lifeguard, and now I know why they say they wait until you go unconscious before they rescue you. I swim out there to help them, and they start to pull me under, and I'm out there dying. And I'm fighting to get back in. And I'm not the strongest swimmer in the world. We made it in. The gospel is an announcement that people were rescued. We were rescued. What do you do to people? Would it have helped them for me to throw them a manual on how to swim? Would it? Like, you're drowning. Let me get you a manual. Throw it out there. How to swim for dummies. Would that have done them any good at that point? No, they needed to be rescued. And that's what Jesus does. He doesn't just throw us a manual. Go live by this. You're drowning. You're a slave to sin. Throw us a a book. Go and do this now. No. He, He reaches down and he rescues. He rescues us. He rescues us, as Paul says in Colossians 3, from the coming wrath of God that is coming at the end of history. That's what the gospel is. That we're lost, we're drowning. He, God, enters into this world, lives a perfect life, dies our death to rescue us, to restore our relationship with him. But not only are we born alienated from God. I know I'm going a little bit longer. That's because Greg went short last week. So we've got lost time to make up for. We're not only alienated from God. We're alienated from one another. 
We feel that. We feel that in marital tension. We feel that in broken relationships. We experience that in sorrow, in painful toil, physical degeneration, poverty, the exploitation of women, whether it's rape, sex trafficking, prostitution. All of that is indicative that we live in broken relationships with one another. It's evidence that if we can use someone for sex, that there's a broken relationship there. And Jesus has come to restore not only this relationship, but relationship with one another. And so when Paul says in verse 2, For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The reason Paul was so committed to this message, because in Paul's mind, our greatest need is not for more money. Our greatest need is not for a new spouse or better children. Our greatest need is to be forgiven and to be saved. That's why Paul says, it's this, this one message that I am determined to preach because it's man's greatest need in the world. Our greatest need is to be forgiven. One thinker writes it like this. He says, if our greatest need had been information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need was forgiveness. And so God sent us a savior. Because man's greatest problem is sin. He sent Christ as the greatest remedy for that problem. The reason that we struggle in this life on almost every level is a result of broken relationship with God and a broken relationship with one another. Even in our marriages. The reason we struggle so much in marriage is because of broken relationship. And so it's not enough for me to tell you to be a better husband, to be a better wife, to be a better parent. My job is to address the problem at the root. And the root is a gospel problem, not understanding what God has done for me. He has rescued me. Just to kind of connect the dots for you how that works. In, you know, Sandra and I probably aren't as godly as many of you are. And so there's, there's times that I don't treat her very well or she doesn't treat me very well. So the, the question is, how then are we to respond to one another? If she's not treating me very well, is it easy for me to respond to her in love? Think about this, husbands, wives. If your spouse has been a jerk to you for a week, what is our natural response? To be a jerk to them, right? I mean, be honest. Let's be honest with each other. That's our natural response. But how does the gospel change that? Well, the gospel, when, when I experience my wife treating me a certain way, her or me towards her, I bring it back to my heart and say, God, you have loved me. I am undeserving. I'm unworthy of your love. I, I'm a sinner by birth, but yet you've saved me. You love me so much, this unconditional love. Now, how can I get up from thinking and meditating on that 
and not go and pursue my wife's heart, even though she's treated me poorly. It's hard, isn't it? It's hard to, to not love someone when you realize that you're loved unconditionally. It's hard for me to not show my children grace when I realize how much grace God has shown me. When I'm at wit's end with them, and, I, and I'm just ready you know, to, you know, to spank every single one of them. Just line up. Line it up, kids. I've done this before. <laughs> you can ask them. When I come to that place, and that's my natural response, it's when I come back to God, and I deserve to be spanked every single day, but yet you still love me, that I'm able to sit down with him and say, okay, come on in, let's sit down, let's talk through this. And I'm able to love them and show them that same kind of grace. That's how the gospel transforms these things. It's how it transforms our relationships. That's why we have to be reminded, like Paul says in Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. I mean, meditate on that. And that will transform every relationship in your life. Perhaps your, your children haven't called you or you haven't called them. And there's broken relationship there. Meditate on, what, on how God demonstrates his love toward us. And I guarantee you that the love of Christ will compel you to seek restoration in that relationship, regardless what's happened. That's why I need it. That's why you need it. Because you're far worse than you think you are. But in Christ, you're far more loved than you could have ever imagined. That's the message of the Bible. Therefore, it will be the message of this pulpit today and tomorrow and every other Sunday that we gather. In different ways, from different passages, we're committed to preaching this message to you. And that's why our vision is threefold. It's a threefold response that we live a life reaching up to worship in God because he first reached down to you and I. We live a life reaching into one another to love and serve and disciple one another because Christ, who was God, served us in a life lived reaching out to a world because we want them to find the life that we've found. That's the outworking. Now, it's our hope that Calvary Paris will continue to be an outpost for sinners to come and find hope in Christ. We're not interested in being a spiritual social club. I'll tell you right now. We are a spiritual hospital and we want people to come in out of the gutter, off of the street, out of their mansions, wherever they live, to find hope and to find Jesus. And it's my prayer that we will be a community of people who realize how much we've been forgiven so that we might be more forgiving towards others. That we will understand that God, God deals with us even though we still sin, that we might be more tolerant and loving towards one another. It's called a, a culture of love and grace. When you crash and burn, and you will, you have and you will again, when you fall, when you fail, I want my face to be the first thing you think about. I want the church to be the first place you think about going. Maybe not my face, but one of the pastor's faces. Oftentimes in this culture, when we 
when we crash and burn, the church is the last place we want to go. In fact, I walk through Walmart you know, at different times, and I see people who were once here, and they've crashed and burned and have kind of wandered, and they sometimes they, they seek to avoid me. <laughs> and I see some of you here this morning. Just kidding. But when you crash and burn, I want the church to be the first place you think about running, not the last place. Why? Because here, in this place, because we're all sinners, we're more accepting and loving towards one another when we do fall and when we do fail. Now understand, because we preach this message, the same reason people come to our church will be the same reason people leave our church. People will come here because they find it as an outpost for hope and life and forgiveness and grace. But there will also be people who leave this church because we preach that message. It's okay. People have always left churches from day one until Jesus comes back. People will leave churches. There will be church shoppers. You'll come here one Sunday into another church on Wednesday, and I like the way he dresses. I like the music there. I like their chairs. I like the hymns. We become church shoppers, and we date the church. We never fully commit to one. We we live a lot like I did before I came to Christ. I'll go out with her on Wednesday and her on Thursday and her on Sunday and this, but never really commit to anyone. Oftentimes we do that with the church. In my exhortation, you find a church. It doesn't have to be this church. Find a church, plug in, and be a committed part. That's what God's call is for your life. That's what he wants you to do. And so again, there will be people who come here for the same reason people leave here. And that's okay, because we want to be an outpost for those who are broken. Christ has come for those who know they are in need of a Savior. And we want to be that kind of place. I was just thanking some of our greeters here before service, because they do such a great job of, of whoever walks through those doors, they get a smile and they get a welcome, and they get a hello. Regardless of what your life looks like outside of these walls, the arms of Jesus Christ are open to all. We come as sinners, and because he's such a great savior, we're not staying there. He changes us, transforms our lives. And that's the kind of place we want to be. One final quote that I'm going to close with. Pastor in Florida, he writes, people who revel in the gospel are people who know they are weak. People who think they are strong resist the constant reminder that in Christ it is finished. There's nothing you can do. In Christ, there's nothing you can do to make God love you more, and there's nothing you've done that will make him love you less. He loves us with a perfect love. Therefore, we can come to him and he can change our lives. Next week, as we continue this journey through Vision Sundays, we'll make it plural, um, I'm going to connect the dots and show you how this message transforms our worship, it transforms how we interact together, and it transforms how we view the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning. I thank you. Lord, thank you that you've given us a message. Lord, we are... We are like earthen vessels that have a great treasure within it, a great message that's worth sharing and proclaiming. 
And Lord, thank you that you have given us the conviction to be fully committed to preaching and proclaiming that message and not just giving good advice to people for life. You've given us the message that will transform their life. Father, I pray that you'll help us to understand with greater insight every week as we gather why why we, why Paul, why you yourself are so committed to preaching and proclaiming one message from different texts and in different ways, you gave the same message. It's because as long as we live on this earth, we will be sinners. And as long as we're sinners, we will need your grace. Thank you for your grace that flows, that is embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us now. God, to live our lives in response to you reaching down, that we would reach up to you in worship, reach in to love and serve one another, and to reach out to the world around us who's lost and dying. God, that they too might find life. And we thank you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Man, go to stand with us as we close in a song this morning.